0: From the heart of our nation's capital, here's Family Research Council President Tony Perkins.:
1: Welcome to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony today. So glad that you have joined us. We've got great lineup for you, uh, what we're going to deal with on the program today. We have three weeks. Until we run out of money again, will Congress be able to raise the debt limit, or will they be too distracted trying to pass Biden's Build Back Better plan? We're going to discuss that. In addition, down under, some psychiatrists are rethinking the way they are treating children with gender dysphoria. Are there things we can learn from their findings? At the end of the program today, a new study, comparing conservative Christians and progressive Christians. Who politicizes their faith more? We'll discuss that in our worldview segment at the end of the program with David Klaassen. But first, for the headlines. Yesterday, leaders of the Chinese Communist Party laid the groundwork for President Xi Jinping to serve an unprecedented third term, passing a historical resolution that lifts him up to the heights of two former Communist Party leaders, the Communist government leader, first government leader Mao Zedong and economic reformer Deng Xiaoping. What does this mean for the U.S.? And what does this mean for Taiwan? which China has set its sights on. With me now to talk about this and more is U.S. Representative Pat Fallon, who's a member of the House Armed Services Committee, House Oversight and Reform Committee, the Congressional Taiwan Caucus, and the Conservative Climate Caucus. He represents the 4th Congressional District of Texas. Congressman Fallon, welcome back to the program.
0: Hey, Joseph. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it.
1: Well, we're glad to have you. First, the news that China is paving the way for uh, President Xi to serve a third term. What's your reaction to that?
0: Well, it's obviously one of pause because we saw the same thing happen with Russia, uh, with Putin. Uh, obviously, the Chinese communist government doesn't have any legitimacy. They rule by the barrel of a gun. But at least with power sharing, you don't have the one strong man because that's always, it's from history's proven that's a rather dangerous cocktail. And it's not surprising. Absolute power corrupts, absolutely, that kind of thing. But so now we're dealing with Xi Jinping and Putin for the foreseeable future.
1: Now, you have been particularly interested in Taiwan, what China is doing there. Do you think this has ramifications specifically tor- for Taiwan?
0: No, oh, I think absolutely. And I don't think anybody in Taiwan is resting easy, particularly after. Our, our pullout and evacuation, uh, and really in a humiliating way under Joe Biden in Afghanistan. And we've been talking to our Taiwanese friends. And the fact of the matter is, Joseph, we filed legislation in our office, and I don't care who takes credit for it. Joe Biden can take it and run and call it the Biden doctrine because it's really good policy. And what we're after here is deterrence. We want to make sure, one thing the Chinese government doesn't want is they don't want a hot war with the United States, particularly right now. They're hoping for our malaise and our just eventual internal decline with our divisions. So what our legislation says is the United States, in no uncertain terms, guarantees the security of Taiwan. That would mean if China attacks, that's a hot war with the United States. That would also be an incredible deterrent. And Joe Biden can call it the Biden doctrine for all I care. But unfortunately, it's not moving under the Democratic leadership in the House.
2: Well,
1: the U.S. is dealing on a lot of fronts with China, and one of those is the climate front. And as you know, uh, there a somewhat surprise announcement was made this week about a climate change agreement. And uh, climate czar John Kerry was asked a question uh, in those negotiations. I want to play this clip and then uh, give you a chance to respond to this. Sure.
3: How, in, your, in the several months of meetings uh, behind the scenes with China, did you bring up some of those very contentious issues, um, such as use, the use of forced labor in Xinjiang for, uh, for building solar panels? How did you address it, and how did you kind of overcome that in reaching this final? Well,
2: we're honest. We're honest about the differences, and we certainly know uh, what they are, and we've articulated them, and, but that's not my lane here.
1: So what do you make of John Kerry's statement that uh, concerns about uh, forced labor, human rights abuses in China is, quote, not his lane when it comes to these climate conversations?
0: It's not his lane, like he's a bowler or something. I mean, I think what uh, John Kerry's lane is, is more of a sanctimonious, self-promoting, pseudo-intellectual, narcissistic elitist. That's his lane. That seems, seems to be pretty good at it. That's just ridiculous that they're going to just Excuse, and, and this is, this was the fear that I had in the election last year. And there was a lot of things that President Trump had done uh, very effectively that I felt was going to be reversed if Joe Biden won. One of which is the Chinese policy that President Trump had really called them to task, and he wanted fair trade. We were getting that. He wanted uh time, You know, we weren't talking about Taiwan and China's aggression under four years of President Trump, but we immediately started talking about it when Joe Biden took office, and they're going to ignore human rights abuses of the Chinese communist government as if they're not the greatest threat we face. They are absolutely the greatest threat we face. Now, Russia is as well, but they'll talk to you about Russia, but they do not want to talk to you about the Chinese threat.
1: Now, Congressman Fallon we talked At the beginning of the segment, we're talking about Taiwan. We know about the, the Uyghur situation, the human rights abuses there. We're also announcing this negotiation or the, these uh, conclusions of negotiations between the U.S. and China on climate. Do these issues affect one another in the relationships between the countries and in the way we handle one because of what we're trying to do with the other issues?
0: Oh, there's no doubt. It's all interrelated. You see it with China – uh, first of all, they can't accept any criticism whatsoever. You see it when if there's an American athlete or celebrity that says something about China, they get canceled in China. I mean, like really canceled. Like they're a non-person or an unperson, like under the Stalinist regime. And you see these again sanctimonious celebrities that will uh, stand up for quote unquote injustice unless it costs them. Like LeBron James is a perfect example. He ignores China completely. And, yeah, they're all interrelated, and that's why we need to be firm. China reacts from strength. They also react on weakness. They'll pounce on weakness, and they'll back off from strength.
1: When it comes to the Biden administration's priority regarding China, when we're thinking about Taiwan, human rights abuses, climate change, what do you think the Biden administration is most concerned about?
0: Oh, uh, that's a great question. Well, certainly, you know, when you talk about climate change and a lot of the environmentalists in the United States want us to, you know, reduce our emissions mm-hmm. and, you know, at really at the sake of the economy. And there's, we can find a, a smarter way. That's why I'm a member of the Conservative Climate Caucus. But with, with, with China, we're, the United States is not a planet. And that's the problem. We, if we reduce emissions, China and India and some other developing countries Will just increase theirs, so it gets us nowhere from an environmental standpoint. We need everyone to agree, or but we we also can't do it at the the expense of the economy, because the quite frankly, there is a huge moral case to be made for fossil fuels, and we can get into that on, on another day, I'm sure. Yeah.
1: Now. Pentagon Press Secretary John Kirby was asked a related question about whether he thinks China or climate change is a bigger threat to the country. I'm going to play that question, his response, and and then give you a chance to respond. You've heard the secretary talk about the climate uh, as a, a, a real and existential national security threat. And it is not just to the United States, but to countries all over the world. And we consider China as the number one pacing challenge for the department. Both are equally important. Both are, uh, are challenges that the secretary wants the senior leadership at the Pentagon to be focused on.
0: What's your reaction to his response there? Uh, first of all, this, you got to be kidding me, right? I mean, this is what I want the Pentagon to be concerned about. Uh, well, first of all, the, let's go, go through threats. What are the greatest threats the United States faces right now? <laughs> Clearly, a China bet on world hegemony. That, that's the, the first thing. Uh, Islamic fundamentalist terrorism. That's another. An increasingly aggressive Russia would be one. How about a nuclear, Iran, a nuclear Iran or an unstable North Korea or a runaway federal spending that risks economic collapse? Those are all real threats to our country Today and moving forward. Now, what I'd love the military to be focused on, I don't know, operating submarines and planes and Navy warships and uh, fighting the cyber threats and operating drones and developing our space initiatives. And I don't know, shooting straight. I don't want them concerned about the weather. I think
1: you probably speak for a lot of people uh, when you say that. The very beginning of the Biden administration with the Afghanistan withdrawal, which, who knows, may end up defining his presidency ultimately. Um, there was this strong desire on the part of President Biden to just be out of Afghanistan at any cost. Do you think that posture that he had in Afghanistan uh, affects how he thinks about Taiwan and potentially makes it, him hesitant to, to protect Taiwan or any other kind of free, free nation ally?
0: But, Joseph, what, what frightens me is this. China has this, they feel, an ironclad claim on Taiwan. Well, the fact of the matter is that the Chinese communists have never, never ruled in, China, in Taiwan, not since 1949. So it's been over 70 years. So they don't have any direct claim. That's ridiculous. Also, from a national security standpoint, economically, we're already dealing with a lot of supply chain issues. Well, what about uh, the semiconductors? Taiwan makes more semiconductors than any other nation they manufacture than any other nation on, on Earth. And China, I think, manufactures about 16 percent, and Taiwan's hovering around 60 percent by some reports. So they would have a chokehold if they took over Taiwan, never mind the moral implications of 23 million free human beings being subjugated to communist uh, totalitarian rule. So Joe Biden has to and must show strength. Because then all that's going to do is feed, it's not going to satiate the appetite of the Chinese communists. They're going to look, they're already manufacturing islands in the South China Sea, and they're going to be looking towards, uh, you know, regional and then global domination.
1: Congressman Fallon, I want to switch gears with you in our couple remaining minutes here. President Biden has repeatedly claimed that his social spending plan would not raise taxes even one cent on anyone making less than $400,000 a year. Uh, new analysis from the Tax Policy Center, which is not a right-wing policy center, finds that the Build Back Better plan would, actually would raise taxes. Uh, what's your reaction to that? Is that going to affect what the Biden administration is trying to do here?
0: Well, you know, Joseph, I'm not surprised at all. Joe Biden says a lot of things that, when examined further, are not true. So I don't know if he's just naive, he doesn't remember, or he's just trying to deceive us intentionally. But this is the things that are so bad. Now, they call it the Build Back Better Plan, the three B's. My three B's would be more like the Biden Bernie bankruptcy plan. What the Americans need to know is what's in this bill. I don't even know how many pages it is now because it was 1,700 pages, then it was 2,400 pages. And it's like 2,600 pages. It's, tw- it's around 2,500-page bill that they wanted uh, the Rules Committee to consider within a few hours once they dropped it, which is, again, absurd. That's something also they said they wouldn't do, but they have. They've broken that promise as well. But let's look and dive deep into what's hidden in this bill. One of the most egregious provisions that really uh, uh, scared the, the Dickens out of me was they want to hire 85,000 I said that right, 85,000 new IRS agents. They want to pry into any American's bank account if you have more than $10,000 worth of activity. Now, that's not one one transaction. That's in aggregate over a year. So that's about $28 a day. Most Americans have that kind of bank activity. 85,000 is bigger than Scranton, Pennsylvania, where Joe Biden's from. That's like we just had Veterans Day yesterday. Joseph, that's five divisions of IRS workers. They want to increase their budget from $12 billion to $80 billion. This isn't 2021. This is 1984.
1: Congressman Fallon, unfortunately, I have to cut you off because we are out of time. There is so much more to get to, and we look forward to getting to to it with you next time. But thank you for being with us today.
0: Thanks, Joseph. Take care. Have a great weekend. God bless. We
1: are going to continue to track that because it is looming. But right up after the break, a related issue, debt ceiling hysteria. Are we going to go bankrupt? We'll talk about it with Congressman Ralph
4: Norman when we come back. Sign up at frc.org subscriptions.
5: At Family Research Council, it is important to us that we stay connected with you and that you stay informed. With the increase in text censorship of conservatives and Christians, we've decided to be proactive to make sure we don't go completely dark due to censorship. That is why we've created a tech subscription platform. If we get canceled, you can stay informed and still find updates on faith, family, and freedom. How? to 67742
1: Welcome back to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm sitting in for Tony today. Remind you that the website is tonyperkins.com where you can find this and every show and replay previous segments as well. Last month, the House of Representatives approved an extension of the nation's debt limit through early December after the Senate passed the stopgap measure in a bid to avoid a catastrophic default and economic disaster. Well, the new December 3rd deadline is just Three weeks away now. Has anything changed? What might we expect in the coming three weeks? Joining me now to talk about this and more is Representative Ralph Norman. He's a member of the Committee on Homeland Security and the Committee on Oversight and Reform. He represents the 5th Congressional District of South Carolina. Representative Norman, welcome back to the program. Glad to be with you, Joseph. So a few weeks ago, we kicked the can down the road on the debt ceiling on the potential of default. What are you expecting from the next three weeks?
2: Joseph, sadly, what I'm expecting is probably go right up to the third and either do a CR, a continuing resolution, or some you know some amount that they want to raise the debt limit to get us by another year. No family, no business, no individual would run their individual lives like this. Uh, you're talking about a country that's over 29 trillion and counting in debt and to continue to not, uh, to, to kick the can down the road. We're at the end of the runway. And I think, uh, but evidently there's not enough will among the, those elected and we got to change that. That's our challenge. But I don't expect anything. I expect that uh, they'll do it again, do another CR and then move forward.
1: I do want to keep talking about the can, but I think the the runway and the amount of runway we have is also important because the can that we're talking about right now, the, the current debt ceiling challenge, is complicated on the Hill because of the debate over the Build Back Better plan. And that, of course, is President Biden's priority. What, how do these negotiations affect each other? Is there a possibility that uh, the prioritization of the Build Back Better plan makes it so they don't get... A, a budget issue resolved?
2: You know, time will tell. Uh, the, the name of it, Build Back Better, is Bankrupt America Quicker is the name of it. It's frivolous spending. You know, whenever you have, we're in the debt that we're in, the 29 trillion training accounting, you have every, you know, every fund about bankrupt from Social Security to Highway Trust Fund and others. Uh, the so-called uh, Build Back Better is, is more like 5 to $6 trillion dollars that we don't have. And it'll just add to the debt. And when you have 10, 10 trillion in this bill for environmental equity, 4 trillion for tree equity, they took off, off the salt deduction, state and local tax. So the millionaires and billionaires that they say they can't stand, they're giving them more breaks. Uh, so I hope Joe Manchin and uh, Christian Sinema stick. Uh, I was disappointed in the Republicans last Friday to uh, vote on this so-called infrastructure bill that is, is adding to our debt. Uh, but, you know, we'll live to fight another day, and hopefully the uh, so-called "bill Back Better will, will be defeated and it stalled in the Senate.
1: And, and tell us that, in addition, the, the debt limit issue that will have to go through both the House and the Senate, how many votes does that require in the Senate? Because we know uh, uh, Biden's budget plan is being held up by the possibility of needing 60 votes in the Senate. But how many to raise the debt ceiling, how many votes do you need?
2: Well, you, to raise a debt ceiling, you, it's, it's a simple majority. Now, under the re- reconciliation, it takes 60 votes in the Senate. And the House is still a majority, you know, 50% plus one. Uh, but, I, you know, I, I just hope we can can delay the future spending. We have got to get back to uh, running the country like uh, most families run their, their household. And we've got to cut things. Uh, you can't continue to spend. So we'll see, and uh, hopefully we'll take heed with what the elections in Virginia were, I think is repudiation of what this administration is doing. So um, we'll we'll see.
1: Now, the American public is not a stranger to these debt limit debates. They seem like an almost annual event. I know they're not actually an annual event, but they kind of feel like it. What are the consequences of doing this year over year over year where we just continue to borrow borrow more money to just pay for operations?
2: Well, the problem it presents is the military and other every government contract release has to be redone, and it, it you know that's a time-consuming uh, effort, and you never know when you know when, when the final date is. We ought to have a two-year budget minimum, uh, and we ought to address what we're we're doing, which is spending more than we're taking in. Uh, there hadn't been any negotiations. The, the the Republicans have not had any input in this. This is totally Democrat control. And Republicans are going to have to find the wherewithal to hopefully stop it uh, and stop the spending that is taking place. But we got to we got to do it on a uh, state by state, uh, congressman by congressman, and senator by senator.
1: Switching gears on you quickly, in our last remaining couple of minutes, you you and other members of the Oversight Committee called on Attorney General Merrick Garland to provide answers about his memo targeting parents. Uh, What are your thoughts on the uh, internal documents released recently that confirm that the National School Board Association did, in fact, uh, deliberate and uh, coordinate with the White House before formally sending the letter to the Biden administration requesting the investigation of parents?
2: No Joseph, this is a weaponizing of the uh law in this country of the judicial system, and it's just a fear tactic. I mean, imagine uh going at a school board meeting with uh the parent that got all the publicity uh, his daughter was raped uh, by a man pretending to be a woman going into the bathroom and uh to to weaponize this and, and and to take parents to jail because they're questioning what the school district's teaching. Uh, is ludicrous. But that's why we got to fight back. I mean, this administration in in nine months has done more damage to try to silence Americans, and it's not working. That's the good news, and I don't think it's going to work.
1: I think the opposite has happened, in fact, where a lot of parents have been woken up. From your seat there in Congress, what do you think Congress should be doing to empower parents in the education of their children?
2: You know, all politics is local. What we've got to do is empower parents and encourage parents to attend the local school board meetings, uh, get groups together and ask, uh, where's the COVID money? Uh, ask, our uh, taxes going to be raised this year? Ask if critical race theory is being taught. Uh, get in the classrooms, take control of your uh, what your ch- children are being taught. It's the parent's responsibility, not the education association, it's parents. And they ought to dictate and have input on what's being taught. And I can tell you, on majority of schools all around the country, from what I hear, they're not being taught what parents think they are. They're not being taught patriotism, our Constitution, uh, and other things. That it's been replaced, and it's been a, it's been a, uh, uh, it's been a desire that this uh, administration has had to control it. We got Congressman
1: Norman, I've got to cut you off, unfortunately. We are out of time. Really appreciate your leadership on these issues and for being with us today. Thanks so much. Uh, my pleasure. Stay with us. Some new emerging developments down under on gender dysphoria. What do we have to learn about it? We'll talk about it when we come back.
6: What is religious liberty and why should you care about it? Simply put, religious liberty is the freedom to choose your religious beliefs and to live according to those beliefs.
1: Welcome back to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony. So glad that you have decided to join us today. Well, sometimes it seems our world is going more off the rails each day. The progressive, or should I say regressive, gender revolution has been at the forefront of our culture's decline. The gender unicorn and the gender-bred person are just two symbols of how the bad ideas of adults are being forced fed to children. But there may be hope on the horizon, in Australia at least. The Royal Australian and New Zealand College of Psychiatrists has recently released a new position statement on the treatment of gender dysphoria. Why is that good news? Well, my colleague Dr. Jennifer Bowens, FRC's Director of the Center for Family Studies, is here to share. Dr. Bowens, welcome to Washington Watch. Thank you for having me, Joseph. Well, it's good to see you For those who who may not be familiar with the issue broadly, just remind us, what is gender dysphoria? How is it typically being treated in America today?
3: Great question. Um, So gender dysphoria, without getting too technical, is basically this idea that your biological sex, um, which which a person uh, has a struggle with, identifying with, um, because of psychological distress So just as a reminder, this is a psychological condition, not one that's actually physical, because we can't change our biological sex. That's immutable. Um, But folks who have this distress are actually internally struggling to uh, embrace their biological sex. Um, So how it's typically treated is really, it's interesting because normally, if you have a psychological problem, you'd have a psychological intervention. But um, most places around the world have um, first like, uh, interventions to help the person socially transition. So that might be identifying with a new name that's of the opposite uh, sex that they are born with. And then um, there may be the introduction of physiological quote-unquote treatments, um, including puberty blockers, cross-sex hormones, Um, and possibly even um, surgeries that uh, help the person, uh, again, help the person identify with the sex that they were not born with.
1: Now, I'm not a psychiatrist, but I have always found it interesting that in a situation where there is a conflict between the mind and the body, uh, some of the smartest minds in the world today have decided the best course of action is to change the body rather than the mind, when in fact it is... uh, It's uh, transparently, it's self-evident that the mind is what was designed to change and not the body. But uh, that might lead me to our second question here. What is the good news on the Royal College? Our friends down under, they have kind of reached some uh, countercultural, it seems, conclusions. What did they decide?
3: Yeah, and, and this is really good news. And, and it's actually, for those of us who um, have have uh, a lot of care and concern for kids have already seen this, um, particularly those who have care and concern are in the research community, and that is, when you look at the literature on gender dysphoria, it actually mm-hmm. does not lead you to a conclusion to say, oh, wow, all these procedures are actually going to be helpful in reducing someone's mental distress. Um, on the contrary... The evidence is very weak. Um, the quality of, of um, scientific examination has been very weak. And what this Royal College did is they recognized that fact. And a lot of people who, who are fighting for these practices, be it in the psychological community or those who kind of hold dearly a gender ideology, um, have not come to the place of recognizing that the data is just so weak. So this is huge. Um, it may not seem like a huge development, but to actually recognize that the data is so bad is, is a big development um, on the fight for keeping kids safe.
1: Were there specific conclusions that they reached that are, that are different than the prevailing wisdom in the states right now?
3: Right, well, the, the irony is some of these, their conclusions are actually just a return to good practice. Um, because there are certain things that you do when you're practicing with minors. One, um, you do a holistic assessment. You want to know what else is going on with the child, not just the presenting issue. So, in this case, gender dysphoria. Um, you want to know uh, because we do have data that shows children who have gender dysphoria often have um, higher rates, more higher rates than those in the general population with childhood sexual abuse emotional abuse, physical abuse, autism. um, Those are just to name a few. So what this uh, college, rural college did is they said, we need to assess children in a holistic way. Uh, We need to assess them in the context of their family because we also know that uh, some, some family members might present with other disorders that could also be detrimental to children. So we don't just assess Gender dysphoria and isolation. We look at the whole picture, and we do practice based on the evidence, which, as I just said, it's lacking. So um, those are a few things, as well as informed consent. Can the child actually understand what the treatment, um, the treatment that they're agreeing to? So if they're agreeing to cross-sex hormones, do they actually know yeah. what that means? in terms of sterilizing their body for probably the rest Dr. of their lives. Dr. Bowens,
1: we only have a couple seconds left. Do you think this is going to impact what happens in the U.S.?
3: Yes, I do. I think that, the, um, that the, the growing consensus and the growing number of detransitioners is showing us that this will eventually be an ideology that falls.
1: Great. Dr. Jennifer Bowens, thank you so much for your time being with us today. Really appreciate your efforts.
3: Thank you for having me on.
1: Now, coming up after the break, our weekly conversation about worldview, and we're going to discuss cancel culture, and we're also going to discuss who politicizes their faith more. Is it progressive Christians or is it conservative Christians? The answer might surprise you, and we'll have that when we come back after the break. Stay with us.
8: Visit frc.org slash internships to apply.
1: Welcome back to Washington Watch. My name is Joseph Backholm, sitting in for Tony. Tony will be back in the chair with you on Monday. Reminder that the website is TonyPerkins.com, where you can watch All of our segments, including the one we are about to have with my good friend and colleague, David Clausen, because it is time for our World View Friday and our World View segment. And we actually have two topics that we are going to tackle today, both of which I'm very excited about. But because we have limited time, we're going to run through these pretty quickly. So hang on tight. The first topic is about cancel culture. Is cancel culture actually accountability? And second, at the end of our conversation, who politicizes their faith more, progressive Christians or conservative Christians? There's actually been a study to ask that question. And joining me now to discuss it is David Clason David, welcome back.
9: Hey, thanks for having me. Good to be here, Joseph.
1: Well, good to have you. As always, let's start with cancel culture. And before uh, we get to the net of the question of whether cancel culture really is about accountability or not. I'm going to ask you, when you hear the term cancel culture, what comes to mind?
9: Yeah, it's a great question. This is kind of a popular phrase that's been used uh, for the last couple of years, I think. But I think when you hear cancel culture, uh, it essentially is this movement that has really gained a lot of steam around the country, Joseph, That uh, uh, dissenting views, unpopular beliefs, uh, views that are outside the mainstream, anything against kind of the prevailing zeitgeist of our culture is not only uh, not allowed to be a part of the conversations, uh, but is actively being pushed out. Uh, You are, quote unquote, canceling someone or some idea if it no longer uh, agrees with the modern uh, sensibilities or sentiments uh, that are now uh, popular in our culture and society.
1: Do you think that cancel culture is helpful because it provides accountability, or is it not helpful because it just is toxic and
9: divides people? Well, I think it's incredibly harmful, actually. Uh, So uh, popular examples, Joseph, and you, you have a helpful piece that we now have up. Uh, at frc.org slash worldview. Uh, But we've been seeing different examples that we could cite, but that people are being canceled. Uh, You know, well-known, there's Christian uh, leaders who have views on same-sex marriage and religious liberty that are being canceled. Uh, But you give examples, even in the piece that you wrote, of uh, cafeteria workers who are trying to celebrate Black History Month or Hispanic Heritage Month uh, that maybe put tacos out uh, for students to eat uh, that are being fired Because of cultural appropriation or something like that. So, by and large, uh, what I'm seeing, Joseph, in the the cancel culture movement is extremely harmful uh, because it's stifling. Uh, It might be done in the name of accountability, holding people accountable uh, for morally right and morally praiseworthy ends. But the way it's practiced, by and large, and it's usually being practiced by those on the left, uh, is actually uh, stifling to free thought, it's stifling to free speech. And uh, as a Christian, I believe at the heart of cancel culture is actually a wrong view of sin and a wrong view of uh, redemption.
1: Well, one of my favorite examples, and you alluded it to there. I'll correct it a little bit. Of cancel culture is Kooks uh, Taco Truck in uh, our favorite woke town, Portland, Oregon, also known as. Portlandia, of course. And the backstory there is there were a couple of women who are uh, Caucasian, uh, lesser pigmented friends, and they spent some time in Central America and in the process learned how to make uh, tortillas, I think was their specialty. They learned all these really authentic ways of making tortillas, came back to Portland. They were very excited to open up their taco truck and show the world of Portland how to make tortillas. But believe it or not, they were protested and shut down because... Uh, white women, though, in fact, one of them was a quarter Asian, as I understand it. But for white women, as they were labeled, uh, to cook and make tacos and make money selling tacos was cultural appropriation. And eventually, uh, their small business was shut down. Now, the piece that you cited in the story that, that I wrote this week, you can find it at uh, frc.org slash worldview, also wng.org. Com. It's uh, for World Opinions, where that was also published. I talk about why I don't think, uh, why I think there's a difference between cancel culture and accountability. And I'm going to run through these real quickly. People can still read the article, of course, if they want to. But uh, get your feedback on these, because there are reasons why I think cancel culture, as we're experiencing it today, is distinct from accountability. And we need to establish the fact that accountability uh, is a good thing. I'm a parent. Everybody if everybody's a parent, they want their kids to be accountable. Coaches want their kids to be accountable. Teachers want their students to be accountable. Accountability raises the standard. And in some sense, that's what the proponents of cancel culture are constantly appealing to. No, people have to be held accountable for their bad behavior which on principle, we're all going to agree with. But does cancel culture actually do that? And here are some ways that I think we can evaluate a situation and determine uh, whether this is an example of accountability or whether it's just an example of uh, cancel culture. And my first uh, key to distinguishing those is that accountability seeks to help someone. Cancel culture seeks to destroy someone. Does that make sense?
9: No, it does, and I think uh, that's a helpful distinction. We, we are all in favor of accountability. Uh, we will all want to be held to a standard of behavior that is good and that uh, doesn't harm other people. But what you see time and time again about this cancel culture movement, it, it seems more uh, motivated by a desire for revenge, a desire to destroy people. There's no way in cancel culture, Joseph, for even someone to become reformed uh, in their thinking. You, you make one sin, uh, you, you commit one transgression against Uh, kind of the woke mob, and all of a sudden, not just your ideas, but you personally are vilified and need to be driven from the the, the public square. So unlike accountability, uh, cancel culture is really kind of driven by revenge and this animus really almost towards the person.
1: That's exactly right. And and for those of us who provide accountability in, in various ways, real accountability seeks their betterment. The reason I don't want my kids to be lazy or dishonest is because I want them to be better people. I want their life to flourish. I want them to be who God made them to be. So I hold them accountable to the things that will detract them from that. And in so much of cancel culture, we don't see people who want the better, who, who, who want to help someone else. They really do want to destroy someone else, which leads to the second point. Um, People shouldn't be held accountable for being different. And yeah. the re- who I have in mind when I think about this is my friend Baronel Stutzman, who's a florist in Washington State, who is kind of on the leading edge of this. I also think about Jack Phillips yeah. in. Uh, Colorado is a baker. These are some of the kindest, sweetest people in the world, but they are being quote unquote held accountable because they have views about marriage and sexuality that are countercultural. Is it actually accountability when you try to destroy someone like that
9: in their business? No, it's not, Joseph. I think that's again that's why I think increasingly we're seeing cancel culture uh, really being uh, perpetuated and furthered. It happens on the right and left, but especially on the left. And the examples you just gave with L Stutzman and Jack Phillips and others is it's increasingly uh, orthodox Christian views on marriage, on sexuality, on, on God's design for how the institution of marriage is supposed to flourish. You step outside of that, the way the Bible defines that, especially since 2015 and the Obergefell decision that legalized same-sex marriage. Increasingly, if you dare uh, dissent from this uh, the kind of the LGBT uh, world view uh, you see the culture uh, the, the cancel culture mob coming after you with a vengeance and again, these are just orthodox views that people have held for two thousand years, and yet because our culture has moved so quickly and so far away from biblical morality you 're seeing increasingly those of us who are just Uh, Everyday Christians who are desiring to follow Jesus uh, labeled as bigots and seen as pariahs in society. And that's where this cancel culture movement is taking us, which is why we need to push back against that.
1: If you have somebody with different beliefs, you don't necessarily hold them accountable for it. You can persuade them, which is appropriate and normal and healthy in a free society. But that's not a moment where accountability steps in if they're not doing something that's actually uh, harmful or wicked uh, to the society. But the third point I want to make, and I'm going to do this one quickly, is that real accountability, distinct from cancel culture, holds people accountable for who they are today, not who they were 10 years ago or 20 years ago. One of the worst aspects of cancel culture, in my opinion, is this instinct to go back in somebody's... You know, talk to who they went to high school with, go back through their email history from a decade ago, check their social media feed from 20 years ago. Not that there was one 20 years ago, but 10 years ago, and see what horrible things by today's standards they may have said, whether they misgendered somebody or whatever new standard we have. Let's go back in time 15 years and then hold them, find them guilty for not doing that. Real accountability. Uh, requires people to be good today and holds them accountable for what they're doing today, this week, not what they were doing a decade
9: ago. Isn't that right? You're right. And Joseph, what you just said is why, I think if we had to boil it down, why cancel culture is so pernicious, and as Christians we should be against it, is because ultimately it has a a distorted view of human nature and sin, the idea that if you've made one mistake, you are irredeemable, you, you can't be corrected. And as Christians, we know that all of us, we live in a Genesis, Genesis 3 world. All of us are imperfect. We've all made mistakes. And there's always hope. That That's what the message of the gospel is. Uh, but cancel culture would say once you've made one mistake, you've offended the modern sensibilities, you should therefore be canceled. And, and the gospel offers a much better way.
1: That's right. Next subject, David Claussen, politicizing faith, progressive or or conservative Christians. Who does it more? Because earlier this year, uh, George Yancey and Ashley, I'm going to mispronounce her name, I think, Kosick published a book titled One Faith No Longer The Transformation of Christianity in Red and Blue America. Now, Trevin Wax, a friend over at the Gospel Coalition, wrote a column on this book. He did some research that talked about the distinctions in how progressive Christians and conservative Christians see the world, what did they find
9: yeah so it's a it 's a common uh, caricature uh, that can, theologically conservative Christians are uh, just completely motivated by their politics uh, they 're in bed with the republican party uh, that they conflate their politics with biblical fidelity that that 's a common character, uh, but what the authors of this book and Trevin uh, so helpfully highlights is that Actually, those who identify as being progressive are the ones that are much more likely, Joseph, uh, to conflate uh, their theological beliefs uh, with their politics. Uh, usually uh, that's where you'll see t- people talking about social justice, climate change, environmentalism, whatever it might be. But this, this book's really interesting and in that the idea is that these progressive Christians who are so quick to tell conservative Christians they're doing politics wrong or they're too, doing politics too much, they're the ones that are actually uh, doing politics and conflating their beliefs uh, with public policy, even David, more so than conservative Christians.
1: Let me jump in here, here, here real quick. What's the distinction in, for the purpose of this conversation between progressive Christians and conservative Christians?
9: Yeah, as defined by this book, progressive Christians are ones that are defined as who don't believe in inerrancy. Uh, inerrancy is the idea that the Bible is without error or without fault. Uh, and so that, that, that issue is important. And progressive Christians also are much more likely to say that Jesus is not the only way to salvation, whereas conservative Christians would hold to inerrancy and also, uh, quoting John 14, 6, say that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life, the, the only way to salvation.
1: And some of the key findings of this research, the first, is that progressive Christians are more likely to establish their identity through politics, while conservative Christians find their identity in theology. Isn't this exactly the opposite of what we've been told?
9: It's exactly the opposite of what we've been told, Joseph. Um, we are increasingly told uh, that conservative Christians, and by conservative, I mean theologically. We're defining conservative. Uh, the theological conservatives, we're, we're told are Uh, You know, in bed with the Republican Party, they're leading on their politics. That's what's most important. We hear that we're obsessed with politics. That's all we do is talk about. And what the studies show is that actually uh, those who are conservative uh, theologically are spending the bulk of their time preaching the gospel, uh, teaching the scriptures, engaging in mercy ministry. Sure, we're applying our faith to politics, but that's not what uh, most conservative pastors are doing day in and day out. They're much more concerned with shepherding their flocks and their people than engaging in overt political activity.
1: The study also found that conservative Christians are more likely than progressive Christians to defy political orthodoxy. So, if you the progressive Christians would identify with the left, generally conservative Christians with the right, generally speaking. But it is, in fact, the theologically conservative Christians who are more likely to uh, to separate from their natural political allies when their theology calls for it because reality is for progressive christians they don't have a theological anchor that would cause them to separate from their political allies because they've already determined that the bible has mistakes and can't necessarily be trusted so they themselves are the final authority for this but very quickly the last thing i want to get to david sorry to not let you jump in there the thing that I thought was really telling, progressive Christians are more likely to seek converts among conservative Christians than among non-Christians, which means they're, try- they're more likely to convert somebody to their politics than to their faith.
9: What does that mean? What it means is that most progressive Christians see that they have more in common with the world. This article says more in common uh, with atheists uh, than they would conservative Christians. And so when it goes out, when it comes to making disciples, they're going to try to poach people from the conservative Christian camp uh, because they already think they have a bunch in common uh, with atheists and nominal Christians. So Again, it shows the primacy of politics over theology.
1: And we have to think about what that means theologically when these, as defined by this study, progressive Christians would look at the world around them and be more motivated to reach out to and persuade people who disagree with their politics than people who have no faith in Jesus and are ultimately um, their their eternity is not secure. And that says a lot about, I think, where they're coming from. But for all of us, I think this study should be a gut check to make sure that the hierarchy is in order. Certainly the gospel cares about ideas. Certainly politics matter because ideas matter. But if we get that order wrong, we find ourselves in a very difficult place, including trying to convert people to our politics before we try to convert them to Jesus. But David Cawson, really appreciate your time with us again today. Thank you, Joseph. And that's what we have for the program today, folks. We really thank you for being with us. We hope that this has helped you love your country and love Jesus more. We'll see you next time on Washington Watch.